invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We've been um, going through the book of Romans, and uh, chapter 8 has been a great, encouraging chapter. Really, it is the Christian life. And so, we've been asking ourselves the last few weeks, which power brings us into cooperation with the divine order? Which power does that? It is most decidedly, the Apostle Paul says, not the flesh. In uh, verses 5, Paul talks about what the flesh does for you. For those who live according to the flesh, set their mind on the things of the flesh. Verse 6, for to set the mind in the flesh is death. It is not the flesh that will bring you in to God's life. It's not the flesh that brings you into cooperation with God's will. It is antithetical to God's will, and it is death. It is the Holy Spirit who brings us into God's life. And we are therefore told in verse 13, which we covered last week, to kill sin through the Holy Spirit. And you can do that. And the Christian life is about freedom from the powers that held you back to serve God before. And so Paul very strongly talks about the need to kill sin through the Holy Spirit. And he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you, are, you will live. This is a very strong warning aimed at Christians. And I think in Christianity, as I said last week, we have a far too cordial relationship with sin in our midst, in evangelicalism. And I spoke about the two ways that we often talk about sin. And the youth group way of talking about sin is talking about sin as kind of a foible or a fault like chewing your fingernails. And then the authenticity badge approach of talking about sin is just the way of, of talking about sin in such a way that it just shows that we're broken and we're in need of forgiveness. Now that's formally true, but that does not that kind of rhetoric doesn't do justice to the way the Bible talks about sin. The Bible says it's because of these things the wrath of God is coming. The Bible says, put to death what is earthly among you. And Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So we need to take, we need to war against sin, never to live at peace with it. So we can and must kill sin through the Holy Spirit. That was last week. And that means, by the way, that you are called to a self-denying life as a Christian. Amen? Self-denying life. Now, I want to tell you this week why that's worth it. Why is that worthwhile as a Christian to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ? You open your Bible with me to Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. The Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it 
in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only this creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Amen. For a Christian, is time an enemy or a friend? Is time an enemy or a friend for a Christian? And I think for many, many people, they have the sense that time is robbing them, that time is stealing from them um, beauty and youth, opportunities and chances to live with joy, gladness. Time is an enemy that just takes away life from many, many people. I was listening to a, uh, a, a debate, and I forget the author's name, but it was a woman, Susan Blackmore. I believe she's an author. And she's what's called a nihilist, someone who believes life is meaningless. Meaningless. And she said something very interesting during this, this debate. Um, she said, when something horrible happens to me, or I read about some terrible tragedy happening in the world, my response is, nothing matters. It's all empty and meaningless. This is how the world is. Get used to it. Get on with it. Well, I want to encourage you today, brother and sister, that in this passage that we're looking at, the Apostle Paul encourages you in the exact opposite direction in your life and in the future. <clears throat> Christians are called in this passage implicitly to endure through present suffering in light of a future and glorious hope. Life is not meaningless for a Christian. There is no meaningless suffering in the Christian life either. And time is not robbing you of joy, of life, of gladness. Time is bringing you closer to a glorious future. And therefore, you need to endure in hope and not be defeated by present trials in this life. That's what I want you to get out of this passage today. So you're encouraged to endure through every trial, every trial in this life, resting your hope fully on the promises of God in Christ through the Spirit. So, look with me then in verse 18, and let's walk through this text together. Now, I want you to understand and view, train your minds to view your present suffering and let a future hope and glory. So in verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, For I consider 
that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. <clears throat> Notice first and foremost that Paul simply assumes that the Christian life will involve suffering. Okay? He simply assumes this. He didn't even argue for it. He assumes this. And I think there's many, many um, people that assume that if they put their faith in Christ, things are just going to kind of pan out and things are going to get better again. The Bible never promises you quite that. It promises you a hope. It promises you fellowship with God in Christ. But it also does promise you suffering. And so one author, um, one commentator commenting on this verse wrote, Here, the present sufferings may refer to more than persecution even, and encompass the full range of human experience. Sickness, injury, natural disaster, financial loss, poverty, hunger, and death. And we will all go through some of those things. And Paul says, it is not worthy. What you are suffering right now, whatever trial, even if you don't feel like it, 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 it could be qualified as suffering necessarily. Whatever trial, no matter how minimal or maximal it is to you, whatever that is, it is not comparable to the glory to be revealed in you. And so the Apostle Paul wants you to set, set your horizons further than your present circumstances. Paul says elsewhere, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So your life is a speck in the universe of your existence. And I, I remember in, um, as I was a child, uh, we were in youth group, kind of a youth group thing, and we were sitting on blacktop. And you know how you can pick up little specks and pebbles on blacktop? Yeah, my youth leader, did, it just was profound for me. He picked up a little pebble. He said, now look at this. Imagine this is your life. And compare this to the whole basketball court we're on right now. It doesn't even pale in comparison. This is your life. And then compare the basketball court to the 70-acre land we're on right now. Compare that to the world, to the universe. This is your life compared to the entire physical universe. And that stuck with me because it shows not only that life is a mist about to vanish, but it shows you how insignificant the present struggles are compared to the eternal weight of glory. And it shows you where to fix your mind on things that will last. So two things I want to give to you from verse 18. Two implications. First, I want you to be aware of what is called an over-realized eschatology. And over-realized over eschatology, eschatology means end times, over-realized means you're trying to fit all the promises of God into the here and now. It means you're trying to make your best life happen right now. And the Bible never promises that. 
And it doesn't want you to try to fit all of God's magnificent, eternal, weighty promises into this insignificant speck of dust. There's much better things waiting for you. And so Paul, Paul doesn't think that your best life can be now or should be now or will be now. Here's what he says in Philippians 3.13. Brothers, I do not consider that I've already made the resurrection of the dead my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Mature Christianity is a forward-leaning, future-looking, presently enduring, Christ, Christ-word-straining pursuit. That's what mature Christianity is. Number two, I want you to understand that your suffering, if endured, if endured in faith, in Christ, will strengthen you. Turn with me really briefly to Romans chapter 5. We spoke about this a few months ago. Paul writes in verse 3 that we rejoice in our sufferings. Do you want to be stronger? Do you want to be more refined? Do you want want to be um, a, a stronger more dynamic Christian, it's suffering that God uses to shape you in that direction. So he says, we rejoice in our sufferings, know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not make you ashamed. I love that promise, that hope will not make me ashamed. Nydia told me that um, there was an experiment done where they tried to grow trees indoors uh, without any outside outside atmospheric pressure or anything. And the trees that would grow indoors, they found that they were tilting over. And they were wondering why this is. Why are these trees tilting over and wilting and dying? And the conclusion arrived at was that there was no wind. And wind, when it comes against the, street, against the trees, allows this, the trees to strengthen, get their roots down stronger, and get their stem more crystallized. That is precisely how God uses suffering. He uses it to shape you and to prepare you and make you stronger so that you can bear an eternal weight of glory. He's outfitting you for eternity with suffering. So, those two things. Beware of an over-realized eschatology. Don't try to fit all of God's future promises into here and now. He doesn't promise that. Number two, do not think that suffering is purposeless in this life. Let's move on. Paul then puts suffering in its universal context in Romans 8, 19. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Let me stop right there. Paul is saying that creation, in some sense, anticipates. Creation anticipates a restoration, a shalom, a regeneration, a reconstitution of its being. It, it eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God, when at that point, God will put everything right. And uh, I think it's Peter preaching in, in Acts 3, he says that, Heaven must receive Christ until the restoring of all things. So, we, I've said this many times before. Heaven is so much better than you floating up. It is heaven coming down. It is a restoration of the world with God being present with us face to face. We were just talking about that before. That's... But our, our hope as Christianity is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, what, what event does Romans 20, think Romans uh, 8.20, refer to? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. What event does that refer to? The subjecting of the world to futility. It refers to God's curse on the earth through the fall. And I will just read you kind of the, the essence of that curse in Genesis 3.17. Directed at Adam, the Lord says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain... You will lead it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the, of your, of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of dust you are taken. And to dust you shall return. That is creation being subjected to futility. To dust you are taken. From dust you were taken to dust you were returned. You will eat by the sweat of your face. You will toil and you will struggle. But I find it so interesting that in verse 20, what is the condition, the mindset under which God did this? Verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. God cursed the earth, it seems, the Apostle Paul is saying, in hope. The word here, hope, elkis, means looking forward to things, expecting something better. So God cursed the earth, expecting a better future. He did it in hope, not just as judgment, but in hope. And we see this in the very curse uh, itself when God says that the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. John tells us that Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? To destroy. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 
So Jesus' coming is the fulfillment of God's hope for a brighter future when the seed of the woman comes and crushes the head of the snake. So you want to participate in the hope of God? It's through faith in Christ that you will be included in the sphere of grace by which you are given the Holy Spirit and you are able to kill sin, the works of the devil now, and you will be released from the presence of sin, the works of the devil later. That is the hope to which you are called in Christ. So, in verse 22, knowing that God didn't just judge the world in judgment, although that was included, but it was done in hope as well. Creation has been groaning since that time. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Groaning. You know, I watched an Animal Planet video you want, to, you want to see the earth grown? Watch, watch these Animal Planet videos of, of the African animals tearing each other to pieces. I watched a, a video of a cow stuck in the mud and could not get out. And a Komodo dragon came along and was ripping at this cow's ear and eating it alive. That, that I think, is creation groaning. There's another video of... Sorry to gross you out, but I just want to. I just want to get. I just want to show you what I think Paul means by groaning. Another video where two lions came and killed this small little deer-like thing and ripped its entrails out and were eating it alive. It was still alive while its entrails were out, and you could almost see this thing's face. That is what I think the Apostle Paul means by groaning. The whole cre—it's not just you and me that groan; it's all creation groans. There's—it hurts. There's pain. There's there's just a suffering that you almost want to turn your face away from. That's the kind of groaning that creation was subjected to, and it shows you how serious and how awful sin is when it enters the world. When God gives creation over to its own devices. But it's not just a groaning. It's not a hopeless groaning. It's not a groaning that's just pathetic and hopeless. Look in verse 21. Our event 22 says, Paul says, groaning together how? In pains of childbirth. That means the groaning is not hopeless because when a woman goes into labor, she groans. I remember when Nydia was in labor, there was, there was groaning, there was pain, but it was done in hopes of something coming from this, in hopes of a brighter future, in hopes of an outcome that's good. Creation groans that way with eager expectation, verse 19, that something will come out of this. So if creation had a mind, it would say, I know there's hope in the midst of this groaning. So creation groans, yes, but it's not a hopeless suffering. 
it's done in anticipation of a meaningful outcome. It's an expectant groaning, and it is attached to the very hope of God when he subjected the earth to futility. God is a hopeful God. He's a, he's a judging God. He's a wrathful God. But he is also a hopeful God. And you are saved within his hope. So, Christians, you and me, are going to join in the experience of creation's godly groaning. And this, this is where you and I come in, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Why are we groaning? Because we are waiting eagerly for something. You're groaning because you're longing for something. And that is, there's a difference between a worldly groaning and a godly groaning. All right? A worldly groaning is when present suffering leaves you demoralized, defeated, and hopeless. Have you ever been to a secular funeral before? It's hopeless. There, there are tears of, of hopelessness. There's lamentation knowing that it's gone. This person's lost. A Christian funeral means that this person has been promoted to glory. And you need to hope that. And you need to believe that in faith. It is sad because we'll miss this person. But it is a hopeful, a hopeful tear that we shed. It's a hopeful sadness that we have. Do you understand that? We do, Paul, in, in 1 Thessalonians, I believe, they were worried about those who had gone before them in the faith and had passed on and died. And Paul says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We don't grieve like that. We have a hope that we're attached to. And we know that when our eyes close in death, those same eyes will open in the land of the living, where the goodness of God dwells. That's the hope into which you are saved. A godly groaning is not being demoralized and downcast and being hopeless. It's longing. Godly groaning is longing for home. Godly groaning longs for restoration and then clings to the Lord expectantly for that restoration. Godly groaning looks past and through my present troubles to the Lord and grabs onto him in hope. Godly groaning wakes eagerly for the redemption of your bodies. And it waits eagerly for a new heavens and a new earth. Hope is what happens when faith is put to the test. That's what hope is. So I believe, I'm working on a, cat, a little catechism type of thing. Um, a, a theology to kind of train people in what 
and why we believe what we believe. So really quick, just for an example, the first question in my catechism is, um, is it rational to believe that there is a God? My answer is yes. Nature and conscience testify to this. And I can give you the moral argument, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the ontological argument for the existence of God. Question one. Question two. Is there any reason to believe, or has God revealed himself? Yes, he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible testifies to. Is there any reason to believe that he revealed himself in Jesus Christ? Yes, Christ rose from the dead. And here is, is there any evidence that Christ rose from the dead? Yes, there is. And I can trot out about 12 lines of evidence for the resurrection of the dead. Why do Christians believe that the Bible is more than a human, human account? Well, because Jesus believed that the Old Testament was the inspired word of God, and he rose from the dead. If someone rises from the dead, you should probably listen to them. And so I have, I have these logical answers to questions that I think are good for Christians to be trained in. However, that's, that's trust and that's faith. But what happens when that trust and faith is met with a deadly cancer? What happens when that trust and faith is met with the breaking apart of your home or your family? That's where hope comes in. Hope is when faith is put to the test. And as you go on in your Christian life, you will have an opportunity to hope. And hope means you're clinging. You are clinging to God, knowing that he has an outcome that's good for you because all things work together for what? For good to those who love the Lord. It's called, this is also could be called waiting on the Lord. The Psalms call, talk about waiting on the Lord. Psalm 130 verse 6 says, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. So a watchman in the morning, a, a night watchman, is tired. His eyes are longing to shut for rest. But he has to stay awake and be vigilant. And he longs for the sunrise. That's, that's like waiting on the Lord. So your trials, your difficulties, your anxieties, if carried through in hope, will be waiting on the Lord, waiting for him to come, waiting to him, for him to restore and reconstitute all things. Now, what, what's the nature of this hope? Paul goes deeper in verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? What would it look like? So we know that we don't hope in what we see because we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. Um, but what would it be like to hope in what you see? That would be a devastating solution to your existence, to hope in what you see. To hope in what you see would be to look at your present circumstances and make that dictate how you hope. So I look at my dying body, 
I look at our divided country. I look at the world. Persecution. I look at all these things, and I'm anxiously looking around for an answer. One side or the other. We don't hope that way. We don't hope in what we see. We hope in what we do not see, knowing that God has a kingdom. And when he comes, he will make all things new. That is the nature and object of our hope. We hope, Paul says, in what we do not see. 2 Corinthians 4.18 As we look to the things that are, that are, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That means passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So we wait for that with patience, with steadfastness. Hope, one author said, is a burning expectation that the world and myself will be put into conformity with God's will, which is good one day. Now, I want to just give you a few pastoral pieces of advice before we close. Number one, I want you to make suffering meaningful in life. How do you do that? Um, you make suffering meaningful not by trying to ignore it, but by trying to entrust it to God. Um, I'm reading a book on prayer. And um, Kyle Strobel is the author of this book, and he talks... He tells us that he has chronic pain. He didn't mention what it was. But he said he has chronic pain. And he said, now, I could ignore that pain. Try to ignore it and just get it out of my head. But that would make the pain meaningless. That's just something that's, that's a burden on me. That makes the pain meaningless. The way you make it meaningful is you take that pain to the Lord. You entrust him with it. You believe him in it and through it. Know that he is working together for good, even in the midst of that. That he is refining me, sanctifying me, beautifying me, and strengthening me. And that it is a sacrifice of praise that I go through it in faith and hope and love. That's how you can make your suffering meaningful for the Lord. You don't get over suffering as a Christian. Never try to get over things. Go through suffering in faith and hope. That's how you make suffering meaningful. Don't get over it. God put it there for a reason. Go through it in faith and hope. And in that way, we are suffering with Christ. Verse 17, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. As I said last week, when you come to Christ, you get the whole Christ. You don't just get his justification. You don't just get the forgiveness within Christ. You don't just get his adoption. You also get his suffering. And you also get his glory. 
the gospel, the, the lost good news of, the, of salvation is that Christ shares with you what belongs to him. You're raised up with him. You're seated with him in heavenly places. You will suffer with him and you will be glorified with Christ. Christ shares with, with you what belongs to him. That is why Hebrews says he is not ashamed to call us brothers or sisters. So we, in this way, by entrusting suffering to Christ, we are suffering with Christ. Hebrews 12, 1, 1 and 2. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So it was for the joy set before Christ that he endured. And when in joy and because of hope you endure through suffering, you are enduring the suffering with Christ, participating in your true union with him. That is the essence of suffering in the Christian life. So to wrap this up, let me put a bow on this. I'll encourage you, Christian, brother, sister, to train your heart towards a godly groaning. Don't think that godly groaning is unfaithful. But train it towards a, with the emphasis being godly, a godly groaning. Means that I'm not being demoralized, I'm not downcast, I'm saddened and I'm weak by it. But... I'm saddened and I'm weak by it in hope that God is going to put things right. There's a song I really like. I don't even know what it's called. But um, one of the verses says, If I stand, Christian song, If I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy You've borne in me this song. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. So don't be afraid to weep. Don't be afraid to groan. But do it as a man or a woman who's longing for the home that God has promised you and the world that he will give you. Also, hope in present circumstances as well. Hope is not just directional, it is present as well. And we've said this many times in our church. What is love? What does love do? It believes all things and it hopes, hopes all things. It does endure all things as well. It endures all things, it believes all things, and it hopes all things. Meaning that it is the loving thing to do for your unbelieving family member to hope and believe that God can turn this person around. That is the loving posture. It's not to believe that this person's future is hopeless. That's not love. Love is to hope all things. And knowing that Christ can, through miraculous divine intervention, change that situation forever and for good. Lastly, 
cling then your heart, knowing that hope is has the present dimension. Train your heart to cling to the future hope that God has for you. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds fully on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died, and your, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. So Christian, endure through suffering and hope, because I am persuaded that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer.